following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. This morning, though, we'll be headed back to Obadiah. I'm excited for us to get back to the prophet again. Um, I want to encourage those who are tuning into the live stream, good morning. Uh, we miss you. Uh, we know that you are still uh, having reasons you cannot be here. We love you. We don't want you to think that we have forgotten about you. We want you to be back soon. In fact, we need you to be back soon as part of the gathered assembly here with us. So I'm speaking to you this morning as well, and I want you to know this. We're praying for you. We're anticipating your love that we need as well with the body and as well as the opportunity to be together. We love you and look forward to the day that you will return. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 9 in the book of Obadiah. Today we'll be particularly looking at verses 5 through 9, but we'll start in verse 1 so we find our context and we'll pray after that. So Obadiah 1 through 9, this is the word of God. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunders came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O T-man, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, as Zach has even prayed for us, we desire that you would work and change us by your grace. I pray now as we hear from the prophet Obadiah, your words to Edom, that they would change us. Lord, we may, he, may we heed the words of judgment and warning for our own hearts. But Lord, as we open the word, may we be encouraged by the fact that Jesus Christ has given himself so that our judgment will not be laid upon us, but by faith it will be laid on Christ. We worship you together today and say thank you. I pray, God, that you would open the word to us and you'd work deeply in our own hearts to constantly be changing us more into your image. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, when I was a younger man, uh, maybe like in my teen years, through college, uh, my friends and I loved comedy. And uh, I have to admit, I probably mostly loved physical comedy, Slapstick stuff. Uh, my dad showed me all the old stuff from Laurel and Hardy to the, the, you know, the, the Marx Brothers, who were actually quite witty, and a couple of other things along the way. But we also liked just straight up physical comedy. And one of those things that we did together is we particularly liked to watch some of those game shows where different contestants would run through ridiculous obstacle courses. 
Now, if you've watched any show like this, you know it's not so that someone will win that you get so excited, but the reason you watch is to watch them kind of make a fool of themselves, to not be prepared for whatever's about to happen, whether they slip and fall or whether they get surprised and scared. In some way, you're watching their reaction as they totally make a fool of themselves. It's a hilarious display of failure in one sense. I can remember one particular thing that I would never actually want to do. A lot of these things would look fun to me, but I remember a particular one that I thought looked awful. Um, the contestants would line up on a certain point, and they'll blow the whistle, and the contestant had to run out of pond and try to make it across the pond. Now, of course, he's not walking on water. There were these little platforms uh, just put throughout in sequence through across the pond. So their, uh, their goal was to try to make it from one side all the way to the other side of the water. Now, that sounds good, and uh, as you can imagine, running full force with wet platforms and trying to make it across is, you know, scary enough, but some of those platforms were just decoys. And so they were just bobbing in the water, and they were not actually founded. didn't have a secure foundation. So you can imagine they're running full force on these things, and they, they hit one, and they, hit, they look like they're doing great, and all of a sudden they, they hit on a decoy and just smash into the water, and they're done. Sometimes, of course, it makes them slip and fall, and all kinds of silly things that, that makes it look like this. As you can imagine, this is both, of course, dangerous, but mostly funny. Um, we try not to, uh, of course, make fun of someone in these sentences, but we like to watch this as it happens. There's whole YouTube channels that are devoted to funny falls and epic failures because they cut us off guard and they're funny to watch. But they all had the same problem, if you can consider this little obstacle for a minute. They were crossing the pond and they were putting their trust every step on each platform that they were doing but some of that trust was unfounded and it didn't make any sense because it let them down. Oftentimes that misplaced step and this trusting of this decoy ended up being their sole reason for their failure. Now this happens in other settings, right? Um, you've probably all watched a YouTube video where someone gets bold enough to get a big vine in the woods and they're gonna get on top of it so they put their hands up and they jump up and they're, and they're grabbing hold of this thing for a good ride across maybe a ditch or of course it's always great when they're trying to go over water um, because you know inevitably what's going to happen. Um, the reason it's on YouTube in the first place is because the vine that they were trusting in uh, shouldn't have been trusted in and it breaks loose and perhaps they land on their back or they get crossed in the water, something like that. The confidence, though, that they placed in this vine was misplaced. The confidence in these steps, so-called, these platforms, was misplaced. And instead of it being something to help them get across, they crash in and the rest of us have a good laugh. I think we've probably all experienced something like this in our lifetime, whether it's personally or watching in these ways. And thus, some of this helps us illustrate the problem of misplaced trust, of counting on something that you think is supposed to work for you and do a certain job, and yet it ends up turning against you. Of course, again, it's not always a laughing matter. I understand that. Sometimes it's uh, much deeper pain and hardship out of these things. We've all had something along the lines where we've trusted, and it's come through that it hasn't been as sure as we thought. In Psalm 20, we hear an important phrase for the Christian. You probably know this verse already, but I'm going to say it to you, say it, not sing it to you, say it to you. It sums up well what we're covering today. Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8 says this. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. 
we look at this passage today that shows us our God. And to be quite frank, it is a terrifying picture. We see God who is merciful and gracious, but who by no means will clear the guilty. He is patient, but he's also the God of judgment, stripping a people of their foolish confidence. It's been three weeks since we've been in Obadiah, so I think it's most helpful for me to go back and try to help us introduce why we got to verse 5 in the first place. So I'm going to try to do this after listening to my own sermon and then working through the worksheet with some, uh, some others. I realized that it might be a good idea to take a little time to introduce us and make sure we understand where we're at in Obadiah. Part of this journey, if you remember, is that you will be able to read Obadiah and other minor prophets and other prophets and understand how these guys write. It's helpful for us so that we will be able to understand God's word and use it wisely and grow by it. So if you were to simply drop down into the book of Obadiah, throw it open without any context, with not knowing anything, and start reading verses 1 and 2, if you are like me, I'm just admitting this up front, the first time I read it, I was lost. I didn't know who was talking, who he was talking to, if there were multiple people going on, what, what the context was, and I was trying to understand, is this just what prophecy is like, like this enigmatic character that we kind of have to unscramble and figure out what it's like. And so what I'd want to do to start us off is help us think through what's really going on in verse 1 particularly. Now once you get to verse 2 and on, it starts to make a little more sense. But when we're trying to place the reference for verse 1, it's really tricky and kind of clunky as well. So the first line there, just go ahead and look at the first one. It says, the vision of Obadiah. This is the title. It's a title, it's a message from God. That's what he's trying to just give you, the title right here, the vision of Obadiah. And vision, as we talked about before, simply means that God has revealed his word and will to Obadiah. And thus the people need to listen to these words. So that first line is simply the way that we understand God is giving us revelation and for us to look at it. But the second line gives us the subject matter that God wishes to speak to them about, Edom. He says, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. So now we know who's speaking. We now we know, you know what he's speaking about. He's addressing Edom. We talked about this before, the descendants of Esau, a very clever, uh, wise, industrious people. They were safe and secure in their natural forces, if you remember this, or their fortresses. They were, they were very militarily strong. Um, up to this point, this starts to make sense. But what we're expecting, since we have the speaker, God, and what he's speaking about is what we expect is a quotation, that God's going to say this, right? That, we, that seems to make sense to us, but that's not exactly right. And you'll see that when you look here. Most of us know that it's not exactly right when we consider the phrase that God is saying. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord. I mean, the Lord does not say that he has heard a report from the Lord. So we have a clue right away that that's not what's happening. So what, who is saying this thing? What's going on? Instead, I want you just, just for a moment to, to go with me. We are getting a front row seat with Obadiah in the heavenly places. We are getting a look at the divine council room. We are getting a look at what's going on behind the veil, stuff that you and I can't go and find a place where this is happening. Think about what we learned in Ephesians. Remember we talked about how Paul helped us by pulling back the veil and helping us know what's going on in the heavenly places where these rulers and authorities, all these angelic beings are. This is the same idea. We are getting a view into that realm. Think of all that Paul tells us as he references these rulers and authorities who dwell in the heavenly places. 
Obadiah is having this scene revealed to him, and he's reporting on it. It is though he is sitting in the audience experiencing the heavenly realm, a place that can only be perceived supernaturally. Again, we cannot go seek it out and find some place where this is at. Obadiah is giving us his commentary on this occasion and communicating the importance to his God's people. And so we recognize that this first phrase is coming actually from Obadiah's lips. He is saying that he, along with these other heavenly beings, have heard a report from the Lord, a message from the Lord. Obadiah has heard this message, but there's more than that. Look what he says next. He says that he has heard the report from the Lord and that a messenger has been sent among the nations. This means that Obadiah sits in this heavenly council room and he hears the message, but he also perceives somehow, whether he sees this happen or knows, that God has sent a messenger to communicate the message to the nations. And we're talking about the surrounding nations, those that are around Edom. Uh, This sets the stage then for what God is about to do. It sets the stage for the actual communication by God. And now we come to what God is going to say. Here's the quotation from God. It can be summed up in one statement. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. This is what the Lord calls the nations to do. Again, he sends this heavenly envoy or this messenger, most likely some sort of an angel, to communicate to these surrounding kings. Whether it's to tug on their heart to make them want certain things, whether it's through specific communication that they might have seen the angel, visions, I'm not sure exactly what it is. But what we can know is that the Lord has sent these messengers to deliver this message with God that they are to rise up against Edom for battle. Obadiah is saying that a heavenly messenger has been sent to the nations that surround Edom, that God is somehow communicating his will to those who know and have access to Edom, and he's calling them to take up arms. This is a, this is a battle cry. This is, uh, it, it has to do with destroying someone that's in their way. And somehow, again, God inflames the hearts and the desires of those nations now to fight against Edom. He calls them to battle. So we we see that this introduction allows us to look at what is really going on in the heavenly realms, where God communicates to his angels, and he dictates that they communicate his message to earthly kings and leaders. And so, of course, they will do it. Now, so I'm going to step out of the the zone for a minute here and think, this is like C.S. Lewis stuff when he writes in the Space Trilogy when he's trying to figure out what it's like in the heavenly realms. And he talks about stuff that to us is like way out there, trying to understand how in the world God uses his messengers and heavenly beings. This is not make-believe. This is real. Although you and I will most likely never see an angel, and although you and I will never be caught up into this heavenly council room, Obadiah shows us what this means and shows us what's going on behind the veil. These angels are obediently doing God's commands and working in our time and space according to God's will. It's amazing. And in a sense then, this little introduction shows us that God is behind all that is about to happen to Edom. God then is the first mover, not these wicked kings. God is the one who does this. He makes it clear he is sovereign over all and he is the first mover. God is the one who turns the hearts of the kings. God is the one who's concerned with the affairs of men and who uses whomever he deems necessary to do what is right in his creation. So all that, that was verse one. That's the introduction to this prophecy. 
Now, when you're thinking, what I'd like you to do is write a big line between verse 1 and the rest of the book. Because verse 1 stops there. That gives us that introduction. And now we get verse 2 and on. The following after that is the actual message to Edom. We just explained verse 1. Verse 1, again, is that title introduction. But the rest of the book is filled with these specific words meant for Edom, meant for the descendants of Esau. If you remember what we did last time, I gave an outline of the book. Grace, would you mind pulling up for us there? And I'm just going to show you these again. You can put all five of them. It's okay. This is the outline of the book. First of all, we have the title introduction, that verse 1, that has the whole thing wrapped up into that. The second thing we're going to see is the judgment itself. That's the destruction of Edom, verses 2 through 9. The third thing is the reason for the judgment. That's kind of like the evidence that he's bringing. It's, it's, and what we're going to see then, once we get to verse 10 and 14, is that it's betrayal because of they have betrayed their brother. The fourth thing then in verses 15 through 16 is the sentence that they will be destroyed with all the other wicked nations. And then lastly, in 17 through 21, we have a promise of restoration. God's victory is, is true and lasting. Now, if you, have, if you want to write that down, you certainly can, but it is actually on Realm as well if you want to go there and check it out. I posted it last time so we can make sure we have that if you want to look over it. This is the high-level structure. You can go past it. Thanks so much. But I want you to see in that that verses 2 through 9, we only just started it last time when we worked through verses 1 through 4. I gave that introduction, and I started into 2 through 4, which is one big section, 2 through 9, which is the judgment. We began looking at it, and verse 2 through 4 said this, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Then God says, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If you remember, Edom trusted in their impregnable position where they lived in the clefts of the rock. They were secure in a high place. They were even described by God as the ones who soared lofty like eagles, who had their nest among the stars. And it was very clear that Edom actually trusted in their lofty, strong, naturally strong position where they lived. But as we saw in this passage, they made an enormous error by proudly looking down on others and around on others and never looking up. Talked about that went back to Psalm. And remember, the Psalms say, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. They were foolish. And this is exactly the problem. They were confidently rebellious against the God who they'd said, there is no God. We are like the eagles. We are high above everything else, never able to be defeated. But as you and I know, no matter how confident a person might be, however strong it may seem that they are, rebellious thinking will always end in destruction. In these verses, God proclaims that he will make them small, insignificant, that they will be utterly despised among the nations. And in a terrifying statement, he ends verse 4 by saying, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. This is only the first part of the judgment, the destruction of Edom, and that God is declaring this against them. We start in verse 5 and 6. We're going to see God continue to explain what he means by bringing them down. He is going to make them small. In verse 5, he says, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? 
If great gatherers came to you, would they not have leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. Now, if we were to uh, be first, if we were at first in verses two through four to be convinced that Edom's destruction was inevitable, in verses five through six, their destruction is now complete and thorough in every single way. If we're speaking in business terms, this would be talking about the total closure of a company, like beyond all repair, no way for them to come back. It's not like a simple recession that we're going to make it through or perhaps fraud that they have to undergo and figure out how to get back on their feet. We're talking about something that takes all of their inventory, all of their resources, all of their bank accounts, all of it is gone. Their building, their employees, their client list, everything's gone. They have nothing with which to start up again at all. He does this by talking about thieves, plunderers, robbers, if you will. And if any of you have ever been victims of a burglary or perhaps you know someone who has, you know that this is not a pleasant experience. Perhaps you or someone who you've known has been robbed at gunpoint forcibly. You know this can be a violating and devastating experience for someone. It's awful. I mean, you are stripped of all of your protections and your dignity, and in most cases, you're completely helpless to do anything about it. Most times, uh, we go on and try to say something about it, but really, we realize that we're just left without what we had before. The thief sneaks in at night. He doesn't want to be detected. He wants to get what is his and move on. He perhaps comes in the cover of night and carries the things away. His goal is to be undetected. He doesn't want to mess with you. He wants to take your stuff, get it for what he can, and get on his way. He doesn't want to be caught. He wants to get rich without having any trouble. And then you have, of course, like someone who might be more in your face about it and forcibly takes someone from you. The guy that robs at gunpoint, maybe with a ski mask over his face. He uses brute force. He hurts you, he harms you to take what he wants. He covers his identity to try to take the little that he wants that's so valuable, perhaps money, cards, something like that, carjacking, something along the lines of that, so that he can get out, not get caught, benefit from what he wants to and move on. Both of these experiences are terrible and they can be devastating for any person who has them happen to them. But God says that Edom's experience of destruction will be worse than both of those types of things. But God says that this is going to be something that's worse. And he says in verse 5, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If thieves came to rob you, they would only take what they wanted and they'd just probably leave the rest. To them, it's not that important. But that's not the kind of destruction that Edom should anticipate. It will be far worse than that. And I want you to notice, because you've probably heard me say it several times now, there's a little interjection right in the middle of this. It kind of breaks up the flow, right? Did you hear that? He says, how you have been destroyed. He's right in the middle of the statement. It's weird for us, but it makes sense in this prophecy. What I mean is, this is kind of a statement like a funeral lament, or like a, an emotional uh, outburst of grief, like a, a wailing, a crying of the difficulty that they have gone through. Like, oh no, how Edom has fallen. Like you could like, kind of think about how that would happen in the midst of a wailing or a suffering congregation. It's almost as though this person is talking and talking about this destruction and someone interrupts with their wailing and it makes its way into the manuscript so that we can get the same feel here about how devastating this is for Edom. The same thing happens in verse 6, but it comes after the statement this way. He goes on. Look at the second half of verse 5 and following. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? 
how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. In verse 6, you see a similar interjection like we just talked about, the wailing cry of sorrow and grief. But this time it goes even further than the last one. This time it explains Esau or Edom that it, he will suffer under the greedy, unrelenting hands of those who tear into their walls, who dig through their, all their stuff, who seek out all the treasures of Edom until they're all unearthed so they can take them all away. So in the second illustration, the second half of verse 5, God refers to those who work the fields. He's bringing up a common illustration so they understand. Those that go specifically in the vineyards and pick the grapes. It was a common practice both in Judah, but also in the surrounding countries that not every grape on the vine would be picked. Of course, in Judah, there was a gracious reason for this. According to God's law, the gleanings were meant to serve those who were poor or couldn't run a farm for themselves. The gleanings were left for them to take and to use for their survival. This is the imagery that God is using here to compare one type of destruction to a different type of destruction. Edom will not suffer a blow that is simply difficult to rebound from, like most of the grapes being taken. No, Edom will suffer a blow that leaves them with no option for recovery at all. All of the grapes have been taken from the vine. God will judge, will judge Edom completely then and thoroughly. These verses, 5 and 6 here, are at the center of this judgment section. They explain just how bad it is, how far, how thorough and complete this will be. But the two surrounding sections, verse 2 through 4, and at the end, 7 through 9, give us insight into this awful judgment. If you remember, in 2 through 4, we learned that God himself would surely remove them from that lofty position in the mountains of Seir. They hadn't recognized that God was above them, and that was greater than their incredibly strong position and safety among the rocks was God himself. That although they soared, he would bring them low. In short, he made them realize that they were trusting something that wasn't as great as God. As we learned then in verse, now as we turn to verse 7 through 9, we learn that these steep cliffs of this impenetrable city were not the only thing that they were trusting in. Look at verse 7 through 9 together. We'll read this. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O T-man, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. In verses 7 through 9, God rounds out the picture by describing Edom's destruction in ways that highlight their foolish confidence in all things not God. If you look here in verse 7, he highlights their relationships. In verse 9, he highlights their wisdom and their knowledge. In verse 9, he, under, he highlights their military strength and leadership. What you see here is all of these things are good gifts from God. All of them are. They are made for our enjoyment and benefit as we subdue the earth and be fruitful in it. But all of these things make terrible gods themselves. They cannot come through on their promises. They're incapable of doing the things that Edom actually needs from them. And when they become the object of love or trust or worship, they buckle. They're no good. In fact, when it comes to their relationships, this first one, not only will these relationships fail them, 
but they will actually betray them and be the cause of great harm for Edom. Look at verse 7. I want you to kind of see the categories. Here we go. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. God says that all the people that are supposed to be their trusted help have become their harm. Allies, those who are at peace with you, those who eat your bread, each of these things describes a people that were trusted, that they had confidence in in some way. All of them seem to be in good relationship with Edom. And from what we can see, all these relationships will prove to work out for Edom. They're wise in so many worldly ways. Edom will be driven out, though, by these people, from their homes and cities, out of their lands, out of their borders, all the way to the edges. Edom will be deceived. They, they think that these relationships are benefit to them, but they aren't. Their peaceable relationships, these neighbors, will now prevail against them, will actually win over them. They will dominate Edom. Edom will be trapped and ambushed by the very ones whom they shared rich fellowship around the table of good food. Edom's relationships, instead of providing security and prosperity, will actually provide sorrow and destruction. I can't help but think of the story that we, we find in Isaiah 36, where the king of Assyria, if you remember this, he sends the Rabshakeh to threaten King Hezekiah about the coming judgment. This envoy, of course, is wicked, and uh, the point of the illustration is further than just this. They will cause God's people great fear and problems. But I want to make sure that we hear the illustration that he uses, because it's so good. He says this in verse 6, Behold, you are trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. I mean, what a picture. This is what's happening here. A walking stick that has a crack in it. Maybe you can't see it, but you're glad to use it. You can't see it, but when it comes time to really lean on that stick, to put all your weight on that stick, when you need it the most, the stick breaks. Not only do you fall over, not only does it let you down, it's worse than that. When your weight goes down, it goes through a sharp, piercing stick. So not only will your fall be great, you'll also fall and have a great injury because of that very same stick. This terrible fate could be said about any earthly relationship that disregards Yahweh as the ultimate king. It was certainly true for Edom, and it is true for any who do not regard Yahweh as God. The relationships that they possessed in the land were crucial to their success. Again, they were worldly wise. They had made good choices according to the world. They were smart. They were wise. They had got good alliances. They were not a large nation, but they were very wise, got good allies and neighbors and friends that were surrounding them. The way that they interacted with their neighbors paved the way for their success. It was very wise in these ways. But now we realize that God's judgment is above all these things. We find that instead of being a help, these allies and friends and peaceable neighbors and dining companions would drive them to their borders, would displace them, would push them out of their homes, laying traps for them, deceiving them, and ultimately prevailing in the end over Edom. As a quick Bible reader side note, we shouldn't miss that God, that the, the word that's used here in verse 7 is allies. I'll just give you a, the literal meaning is all men of your covenant. Now that may not mean anything to us right away, but if you know anything about verses 10 through 14, you're going to realize that's really, really ironic and important. 
what's happening to them seems to be the very thing that they have done to their brother, Judah. God says that all of Edom's trusted partners would turn on them and cause them great harm. Look, look, harm. look at the end of verse 7. Here you will see both a commentary on Edom's misplaced trust, but you'll also see the new tie-in to verse 8. Starting at the end of verse 7, or I'll start at the beginning of verse 7. He says this, All your allies have driven you out to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. Here we go. You have no understanding. Will, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the Mount Esau? He first comments on the foolishness of what we just saw, of anyone who trusts in wicked men for their security and safety. He says, you have no understanding. You are not wise. And this is actually quite a blow for Edom. If we look at the biblical account, we actually know that Edom was well known for her wisdom and T-man, uh, her, her, her wise men and her intellectual prowess. In Job 4.1, we find that Job's wise friend, Eliphaz, was from Teman, or again, a reference to Edom. In Jeremiah 49.7, we find God assuming that everyone knows that Edom is a place of wisdom, prudence, and wise counsel. So when God tells them that they have no understanding, that they're not wise, this is a cutting remark. And he's cutting through to help them see what true wisdom is. Of course, we aren't really surprised by this because you and I know what the Bible tells us is wisdom. We know what understanding is. Proverbs 9.10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight or understanding. Edom did not fear the Lord. They did not know the Lord. And so their understanding, their wisdom was not ultimately any help to them whatsoever because they did not acknowledge God. God says, you have trusted in allies and peaceable neighbors and friends, and they're supposed to help you. But that is foolishness. You are not wise. You have no understanding. And as a result, God says in verse 8, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding men out of Mount Esau? The very thing that you trusted, your wisdom, God will destroy. And before we move on to verse 9, I just want to quick plant a flag, a Bible reader flag on verse 8, beginning there. We need to remember it. It will be important as we seek to understand the message of Obadiah. Do you see it says, will I not on that day? Now that just may seem like nothing to us, but it's actually a signal. It's pointing us to verse 15, which is talking about a very specific day. What we have here is him pointing to something that would have a literal fulfillment and a near fulfillment, the destruction of Edom, but something that was coming that was far greater, far more severe. The day when they will be pillaged and destroyed is coming near, but there is more. On that day has the ultimate tie to verse 15. We're talking about the day of the Lord. There is coming a day of judgment for all nations, a day of reckoning, a day when God will make all things right both for sinful nations and for his people. And we will deal with this more as we actually get to the details of verses 15 and 16. But for now, I want us to see that there's a near fulfillment that he talks about right here, but he's also talking about something that's much bigger than this. For now, we understand that he will destroy their wise men, their understanding ones. Finally, look at verse 9. God brings it down to the very level of physicality. Verse 9 says, And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O T-man, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. 
We're talking about soldiers. We're talking about mighty men. We're talking about warriors. I mean, this is the last line of strong defense. The physical mighty men of T-Man, though, are no match for the almighty God who is here to judge sin. There's this ominous note at the end. The words he uses are bad, are harsh, are, again, sounding a note that should be the death knell to them. He says, cut off. These are notes of divine judgment. These aren't just physical acts done by other armies. These aren't just punishment to help get their attention and bring them back. This is divine punishment executed by God himself. If you remember the battle cry from verse 1, he is the one who said, rise up, let us rise against her for battle. In verse 9, the judgment is complete. It's thorough. It is sure. It will happen. We've come to the end of Edom's resources, the last line of defense, the mighty men, and he'll easily take them out. They are cut off by slaughter. What is the message of all this then for us today? As I said at the beginning, we see a picture of our God who is terrifying, who is almighty, who is sovereign over all creation and takes sin seriously. No amount of natural resources or powerful relationships or deep wisdom or even physical strength can stand against this God. Consider the judgment that we find in verses 2 through 9. God tells them that he will bring them down and he will do so by exploiting the very things that they trusted in the things that gave them hope. In verse 2 through 4, they put their trust in this lofty dwelling, in these, in these, these caves and these rocks and the, where they were at. They thought it was so secure. They trusted in their position, their natural resources. In verse 7, they put their trust in the relationships that they had attained by wisdom and with their allies and neighbors and friends. In verse 8, they put their trust in their own intellect and wisdom, their wise men and their own understanding. In verse 9, they put their trust in the strength of their mighty warriors, banking on their power, strategy, and skill. But in the end, they've put their trust in all the wrong things. Do you remember where we started today? Psalm 20, verse 7 and 8. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall but we rise and stand up. It's not, about, it's not like a battle cry of how awesome I am. <laughs> Much more, it's actually how awesome the name of our Lord God is. The one who is terrifying is the one that we hope in, him and him alone. In a sense, you could put here, if you wanted to, instead of chariots and horses, you could say resources, relationships, wisdom, mighty power, and warriors. You could put all those things, but we must trust in the name of the Lord our God. We will continue to see how Edom's judgment teaches us about who God is and how we ought to relate to him. That will come in the weeks to come. We'll see that even greater detail, in greater detail, that we should consider this book of Obadiah very seriously. But for, day, for today, I don't want us to miss the message of those of us who struggle with the same things that Edom struggles with here. It's too easy, if I'm quite honest, for me to relate to Edom to understand why it was so easy for them to put their trust in all these different things. I know that I regularly look at all these things around me, things below me, and I do my best to make my position safe and secure and prosperous in this life. 
all according to the standards of what I can see with my natural eyes. We said it earlier, but relationships and resources and intelligence and physical strength, these are all good gifts from God. We rejoice in them. They are good, but they make terrible gods. They're not worthy of our worship. They're not an end whatsoever. They cannot produce holiness, and neither can they rescue us from the hand of divine judgment. And so, at best, they are weak idols, idols that instead of helping us in our time of need will be like a broken walking stick that pierces through our hand as we fall. Perhaps you are here today then, maybe you're listening at home, and you realize that you are trusting in the wrong things. You realize that you are just like Edom. Perhaps you realize that you do not trust God for your ultimate joy and salvation. Can I just say that this life is short, and after this life there will be the judgment of God. That is not a scare tactic. That's true. That is actually love to show you and say, this is true. Repent and do not continue in this way. My question is, will you be ready for that then? Maybe you're a child in, this, in, in listening to this. Maybe you're a teenager. Maybe you're an adult who's been around the church your whole life and haven't taken this call seriously. And you know that you do not trust God with everything. If that's true, there is good news. And if you've been around Cornerstone for any amount of time, you know what it is. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. It's an opportunity to repent of your sin and trust God in the person of Jesus Christ who has given himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. We understand that God is holy. We've sinned against him. We are accountable to him and we deserve judgment. But Christ has offered himself as an atoning sacrifice so that we could be made right, could be reconciled to the Father. Today, if this is true, you must realize that just believing the facts is not enough. The Bible shows over and over again, even, even the demons believe the facts and they tremble. They're not saved. They have no hope. Well, then I ask you, would you trust him then with all? We read it this morning. Kirk read it for us. Um, if we trust in him, he will give us the desires of our hearts. We often twist that verse so badly. What I'm talking about is trusting the Lord is all of us, all in knowing that God is the ultimate source of joy and all meaning. If we will trust that God, he promises to give us himself. He promises to come through on every one of our deepest desires found in him. So I just ask you then, will you turn to him today for salvation? But perhaps you're more like me today. You do trust Christ for eternal joy and for your salvation, but you regularly tr struggle with trusting all these other things too that are around us. Obadiah has shown us God's perspective on humans trusting other things. He hates all those who rebelliously, foolishly put their confidence in earthly, temporal idols. And so, by God's grace, brothers and sisters, repent. Do not continue in this way. I mean, we thank God for the message of Obadiah. We thank him for revealing even this to us. We thank him for the ability to both repent and ask for his help. This is the Christian hope that we have in God himself. We thank God for revealing this, and we ask him to help us in our fight for joy in him and our fight against this idolatry. So with happiness then, 
we, as those who are in Christ, declare that our joy and our truth is secure in God himself. Let me then close us in prayer by asking God to do this in us today. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are shown a picture of your judgment today, a picture of devastation on all things that we would trust that are other than you. Our ignorance and our rebellion make us prone to trust the things around us, these, these lesser gods. They seem so good, they seem so real, they seem so wise. Lord, we thank you for exposing them to us, for showing us that they are nothing but a broken reed that will pierce us through. Lord, we are weak. We need your help. And we ask today, according to the riches of your glory, that you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner beings. God, we desire that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. As your people, we have been rooted and grounded in love. So we ask that you, a good and giving God, would give us strength to comprehend with all the saints for all the millennia, Lord, what you have done, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. Help us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord, we be the ones who proclaim Christ in love to our families, our neighbors, our friends, and would Lord Jesus Christ save many for his name. We praise you and thank you for all that you will do your name we pray. Amen.